Hey leaders, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you about a free event that I'm hosting, your personal leadership audit live workshop. I've put the workshop together because if you want to stand out as an exceptional leader, you have to know yourself inside and out. Understanding your strengths and weaknesses is critical. And for that, you need a high degree of self-awareness and a commitment to self-reflection. Now, if you're committed to unlocking your leadership potential, then working through a self-assessment like this is going to help you to quickly identify a path to higher impact. I'll be leading you through a deep dive into the seven imperatives of my No Bullshit Leadership Framework, so that by the end of the session, you'll know exactly what areas you need to develop if you really want to stand out from the crowd. We're only opening up 150 spots, so register now at yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. That's yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more. Access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 157 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, From Kitchen Table to Global Icon an interview with Samantha Wills. Samantha Wills is an Australian designer, entrepreneur and author who achieved global prominence with her eponymous jewellery range. Starting the business from her kitchen table in the seaside town of Port Macquarie, a few hundred miles north of Sydney, the popularity of Samantha's designs took the fashion industry by storm, with a host of global celebrities being photographed wearing her distinctive pieces. 
Her new book, Of Golden Dust, chronicles Samantha's journey with her jewellery business and gives us a no-holds-barred account of both the business and personal challenges that she faced over those years. Samantha wound up her business in early 2019 to move on to other pursuits. Her story is absolutely fascinating and it has lessons for us all whether you're an entrepreneur aspiring to the level of success that Samantha has achieved or you're an old corporate dog like me. I know you're going to love this interview so let's get into it. Samantha Wills, it is fantastic to be able to welcome you to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for your time. It's a treat to be here. Thank you for having me. No worries. Now, I've got to tell you, your book recently released, Of Gold and Dust, it's not the sort of book that I would typically pick up as I browse through a Barnes & Noble, right? It wouldn't catch my eye as being something that I absolutely needed to read. But when I read this, the book is brilliant. It's beautifully written. It's, I think I said to you before the interview started, it's elegantly written and I took so much out of it. So thank you so much for that. And congratulations. How have you been feeling about it since it's been released? Oh, thank you for your kind words. Truly, as a first time writer, you know, it's, um, you just put it out there and really hope for the best. I was really calm um, by the time that it got released. It was uh, meant to be released in March 2020. And of course, the world changed and uh, the my publisher wanted to tour the book. So we pushed it back to March 2021. So it kind of gave me another year to really sit with the information that I was handing over. So um, yeah, I'm really proud of the body of the of work and excited that she's out in the world. How did you feel about it over that over that 12 months? Because there is quite a gap between delivering a manuscript and then having it published, um, which I'm feeling at the moment. Did you still feel as good about it the day it was released as the day you finished the final word on the manuscript? And how has that changed, if at all, uh, since you had it out in the world and people started to actually critically comment? Yeah, I, I think I felt much more calm by the the final handover date or the day that it was released um more so than the first manuscript handover because um I don't know just like that extra time to sit with it I think that you know I was handing over a lot of vulnerable information because you know it's while it's a, a business memoir it does touch on the personal um element as well and just the the immediacy of and I'm, I'm a very slow reader so when people are you know the day it was released and then 24 hours later someone's like oh you know I, I read it in 24 hours I'm like oh my god did I not put enough words in it like what was it, <laughs> it was just such a lovely <laughs> so you know it was it's very much um people like oh you know and here's my story and that real connection I think which is the complete purpose of storytelling right is that is that connection so um no it was I felt I felt very calm and it felt like very much the right thing to do. Yeah, fantastic. So once again, congratulations. It's just a beautiful book. Um, Now let's talk about your past and I want to pull out some of the stories in the book because they are compelling. You were brought up in Port Macquarie and for those of you who don't know our listeners in over 70 countries, Port Macquarie is about 400 kilometres north of Sydney. It's a beautiful little seaside town. I wanted to call it sleepy, but that might be a little, a little bit derogatory. But it is a beautiful little place. It's a beautiful part of the world. And you grew up there as as a daughter of small business owners. Mm-hmm. Now, how did that affect how you actually went into the Samantha Wills jewellery business, particularly as you started to grow? Because I just get this concept of small business owners bootstrapping everything and sitting up at the kitchen table at 11 o'clock at night doing their accounts and so forth. Mm-hmm. But you managed to transcend that to build basically a global empire, which you ran out of New York. What was the difference in doing that as opposed to what your parents did? 
and what lessons were useful and what lessons did you find constrained you, if any? So do you like the way I asked about six questions there, Samantha? <laughs> I'm, I'm taking notes here. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, it's a really great question. Um, so my parents, yeah, always had their own small businesses. And, you know, I grew up in a very blue-collar upbringing. Like it was, um, you know, and in, in the I was in high school in the 90s. And, you know, this makes me sound like I'm about a 1,000 years old, but it was a time before the internet. So, you know, at my small little school in Port Macquarie, I didn't know that you could be a creative director. I didn't know that being a jewellery designer was a career path. I just knew what I kind of saw and what I saw was very blue collar, hardworking, incredibly, you know, humble people. So, um, you know, definitely saw the hustle, I think, of, of my parents' small business and, you know, um, the very much, like you said, the bootstrap of, of doing the accounting at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. Um, and I think, you know, I barely finished high school when I, I did all creative subjects. So I didn't even get a UAI to go to university or college. Um, and then I started handmaking jewellery. My mum had put me into a beading class when I was about 11 years old. So I really learned the basis of jewellery all the way back then. And then just started making it in, you know, when I was about 20 as a hobby. And then my friends would kind of come over and they're like, oh, you know, can I, can I buy these? I was like, oh, you know, they're not really for sale, but sure kind of thing. They're like, hey, would you bring all this over to my house? I'll invite some friends over. And then, you know, these almost like party plan. Like remember Avon oh, yeah. and Nutramedics, that kind of party plan concept. Um, an organic that kind of formed organically for me with, with jewellery. Um, so I don't know, it wasn't something that I ever set out to be like, oh, I'm going to go into my own business. I um, it, was, it was more happenstance, I think, that it all started to, to come together and I followed that creative passion, um, got myself in the first three years very much a solopreneur. So, you know, when I say literal blood, sweat and tears, I, I say that in the most physical sense my hands would bleed from making jewelry you know 20 hours a day um and I ended up getting myself into $80,000 worth of debt because as a 21 year old at that time or 20 21 22 23 in those first three years um I knew how to build a brand but I did not know how to run a business so I kind of you know came to the end of that line of that solopreneur journey and then um met my my business partner that would I would go on to have an 11-year partnership with and he was very much the the commercial um, structural element and I was very much the brand creative. Mm. Well, look, we'll get to Jeff because I've got a bunch of questions about him and uh, what an incredible partnership to form. Yep. Um, and, and you pursued him in a way that um, I found intriguing uh, and he uh, he resisted all attempts for you to get him to join the brand but eventually did and it was uh, very, very successful. But I just want to go back to that $80,000 worth of debt. I'm, I'm looking at it going, how do you rack up $80,000 worth of debt when you have such little infrastructure, such low overheads? All you're really getting is materials for the jewellery. Yep. And of course, I think you were working at Surf, Dive and Ski for much mm-hmm. of that. You were actually working a part-time retail job so that you could afford to do what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Where did that 80000 come from? It's a great question, Martin. <laughs> I think, you know, I now and I'm like, what was I doing? What where did that debt come from? But um, I think, you know, at, at, at 21, so I started at 21 and I was selling down at Bondi Beach Markets, which at the time was a big launch pad for Australian designers. I was working at Surf, Dive and Ski. So through the week, my nine to five at Surf, Dive and Ski, making jewellery at night. And every 3 a.m. every Sunday morning, you had to go line up to get your spot at the markets and then doing the jewellery parties every other night. And I think it was just this, um, you know, inexperience of just hand to mouth. So it's like, okay, I had a great week at the markets. You know, at that time that might have been an $800 or $1,000 
week. Right. And I'm like, all right, I just need to replace that that jewellery. So at that time, you know, I didn't I didn't know how to source things offshore. I didn't know how to. So I'm just like, all right, the local bead shop at Newtown, I'll go out there and start to buy things in bigger bulk there. So, you know, I, I think just that inexperience of forward planning, I think it was very much reactionary to um, what was available right now. And I didn't have any bank loans. It was all across five credit cards. So not only was the, the structure of how I was doing it, it was just a, a very naive way to, to exist. Yes, you can only pay, you know, 4,374% interest for so long before you get the hang of that, right? Exactly. So, and I, I think to one of your questions before when you said, you know, how did that impact my thinking? I think growing up in the community that I did was very much a traditional thought process on spending money. So to me, um, you know, spending money was, I was like, the more money that I can make, the better the business is rather than putting a stop on it and being like, hang on, I need to put an infrastructure in place. And then secondly, I saw a lot of things as cost rather than an investment. So rather than being like, hey, maybe I should get a bookkeeper because I'm 21 years old and I have no idea how to run a P&L. I was like, oh no, that's an expense rather than looking at it as an investment. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. So when we talk about um, the origins of the business, which were basically party plan, as you said, you, you could have actually probably set up a very successful multi-level marketing structure there mm-hmm. um, and done quite well out of it. Um, but you had, this, you had this diversion between that part of the business in terms of a channel and the wholesale channels where you were putting your jewellery into retailers. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, I believe you sp- split the brands off so they're in separate brands and managed separately. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look back on that particular piece, those decisions about brand and uh, channel for marketing, um, I imagine Jeff had probably a fair uh, hand in that. Do you feel as though you made the right moves then? Are there things you would have done differently when you made those decisions about pricing and channels to market? Yeah, well, when so when I had the jewellery parties, retailers were like, hey, you can't be selling you know jewellery parties because obviously you could sell it cheaper in that platform versus into wholesale and retail um, channels. So that was, even, that was pre-Jeff even before then. So I think the reason that I, I closed down the uh, jewellery plan, party plan one, because for me, it was about branding. It was about building this brand. Like from the start, brand was first and foremost, my one true love. It wasn't about how do I turn this jewellery over to make the most money in the shortest amount of time, which if that was the case, I probably would have naturally leaned towards the party plan. Um, but for me, it was it was nurturing the brand health of the Samantha Wills brand. And to do that, I had to part ways with the the party plan business. Um, There were definitely times throughout um, the course of the following, you know, I'm going to say 11 years um, where I would say to Jeff very opportunistically, why don't we do a diffusion line for, you know, X, Y, and Z, or, you know, a big retailer might've come to us that we weren't able to stock because the price point maybe wasn't right. I'll say, oh, we could do a diffusion line and really, you know, really go hard on that. And it was him actually, to his credit, that was like, you need to honour your main brand. Like that is the the heart and soul of what we do. If anything else outside of that is not done with that same integrity, then there's not a lot of longevity in it. So definitely all diffusions came back to how are we protecting the Samantha Wills brand by making this decision? Mm. Yes. Yes, I understand that. That's That's excellent. And uh, let's come back to Jeff for a minute. Jeff Bainbridge, your business partner in Samantha Wills Jewelry, mm-hmm. uh, you pursued him for a period of time and you were connected to him um, through other means, but he kept saying no and you kept pursuing him. Mm-hmm. What made you really convinced that he was the guy? Like there are 
dozens and dozens, hundreds of experts in building brands and businesses and so forth, but you pursued him to the exclusion of all others as your business partner. Why? What made you so sure? Uh, I think, you know, I'd gotten to the end of the line. So the $80,000 debt, you know, the credit cards stopped swiping and the bank were like, you're not getting any more, rightly so. Um, And then, you know, I had met, and I think at that point, especially in solopreneur um, mode, you're just kind of like, you'll tell anyone what you need. Like, I think we're so often to be, you know, we, we quieten down what we need because we don't want people to think we're in, in a rough spot or that we're a failure for any means. But at that point, I'm like, if anyone knows anyone that they can introduce me to that is looking for, um, you know, be looking to get involved in a fashion business. So I actually got introduced to a gentleman who I met with and, um, you know, he was a CEO of a pharmaceutical company and he had daughters my age and he was like, yeah, you know, I, I can help you out. And, you know, he wanted to buy in to kind of clear the debts but essentially wanted 51% of of the company in exchange for that and at 20 I think I was about 25 at this time and I just I was holding on to such a lifeline like I just need to get out of debt that was as far as my field of vision went it wasn't any any further than that and then serendipitously I I met Jeff through uh, an old contact from surf dive and ski and Jeff at that time uh, he had many different businesses but he had a surf jewelry business um, and just before I was about to exchange the contracts with the, the gentleman previously, I had met Jeff and I explained to him that what was going on. And I said, but don't worry, you know, I've, I've got, you know, someone that's interested to invest. And he looked at me and he said, well, what do they want for their investment? And I said, well, he only wants 51% of the company. And excuse my language, I don't want that to say, but he looked at me and he said, if you sign that contract, it'll be the fucking dumbest thing you ever do. And it was kind of like a come to Jesus moment for me because I was like, oh, and it was, you know, my, my field of vision then was like, oh, okay, I see the impact of what this actually means. And so I took um, a contract role designing for Jeff's surf jewellery company and, you know, I would see him every every Friday. I'd fly up and I'd work in their offices and with their design team while still running the Samantha Wills business. And just the more I got to know Jeff, the more that I just, well, I knew instantly he, he's just such a brilliant brilliant business mind um, and I think in this instance he also un- he had an understanding of jewellery which I think is a really rare find to to find in someone like you know they had a, a full production um, supply chain they had logistics everything within that business that he knew intimately was essentially what I was needing as well and I think you know after all that aside I think at the end of the day too I just I really liked him as a person I liked um, our connection I liked his energy and I think when you're um, you know making that decision or bringing someone into your business, there's there's also a personal element that you have to admire them and, and have respect for them as well. So, and and I asked him, as you, you know, you mentioned, I asked him 14 times. He was like, absolutely not. Like your business looks like the type of business where the accounting's run out of a shoebox. <laughs> I was like, that's exactly what it is. And on the, on the 15th time I asked him, I was like, what about now? He's like, oh my God. He's like, I will think about it. And I think he said that just to like buy some time to get me off his back. And I was like, I'll take that as a yes. And I transferred over 30% equity to him. Um, and I didn't want a cent from him. I just wanted his business mind in, in my company. And um, within six months, he had turned the debt around and we did not have a loss making year in the 11 years that we were in business together. And it was, um, it was a brilliant commercial creative partnership. So, yeah. Mm. Which is like, what a great story, Samantha. And uh, I've got to say, just from what I've read, 
Uh, Jeff sounds like a guy who would be a no bullshit leader. He's pretty direct, isn't he? He, I, I don't think I've ever met someone more direct. His LinkedIn profile is just a picture that says "get shit done." <laughs> that's, that's it. So um, that sums up pretty well. <laughs> that's fantastic. Let me just shift gears a little. I want to talk about how you see yourself as your identity because um, you're many things, right? Now you're an author, published author, um, going great guns there, a creative person, clearly, a businesswoman, um, a leader. How do you see yourself and how would you describe yourself if I ran into your party and said, hey, Samantha, you know, what do you do? Who are you? I know. That, that is a big question, actually, because, you know, as someone, as we said before, who ever so modestly names every brand after herself. Um, <laughs> and I think over the 15 years of, of that jewellery journey, the brand was Samantha Wills. So for, you know, when I got to, to the end of that 15 years, I was like, well, who am I without Samantha Wills jewellery? Or, you know, I think throughout that time, I even lost the name Samantha as myself. People would call me SW because the the brand got that name. So there's definitely some type of identity. I'm not going to say identity crisis, but like an identity dance that you have to you have to do in that instance. I think now I would say um, Samantha Wills creative director and writer, I think would be, would be my titles at this point. But I think first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a creative at heart and whether that's, you know, creative directing campaigns, whether that's writing, every touch point that I do is, is based around a creative element. Right. Okay. And you, you clearly do that very well. And I guess the thing for me is, how did you actually grow a business to the size it was with the, the number of people you had working for you? You're over in New York City, mm-hmm. most of your team's mm-hmm. in Sydney, uh, and you've got to manage all of that. Did you have someone who was absolutely critical onshore in Australia who was running the logistics and the operations of that business that you relied upon um, you know, incredibly heavily to get all that stuff done while you were being creative and actually making the markets over in the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. And obviously, like, as I just explained with, with Jeff, like he was, he very much put that structure around me to allow me to be the best creative that I can be because my value to a business and to specifically to that business was the creative life, but it was the new ideas, the designs, the branding, the storytelling. Um, and I think what we were able to do probably, I'm going to say eight years into to the Samantha Walls journey was really bring in people that were experts of industry. So our funnels were, you know, we'd have a head of logistics and then we'd have a head of sales. And we didn't, while we had a general manager that sat in the business, we really hired experts of industry through each pillar. So every, um, you know, silo of of our business was run by great people. So that was first and foremost a a huge help in that. Uh, With me being based in New York, um, we had a brilliant general manager that would kind of manage people and and process here in Australia. And I am the first to say I, I think I'm a good leader, but I I know I am not a good manager. Like it's um, you know, my my strength is very much in that top level, setting the vision, inspiring the team, you know, people, people, people. But when it comes to process and structure, I I'm so bad at that. <laughs> and um, I'm I'm the first to admit that. So it was almost like me not being in the day-to-day running of the business allowed the business to, to run better from a logistics and structure perspective. A, a great insight, Samantha. And uh, I love the fact that you actually know what you're good at and what you're not, <laughs> because the failing that most leaders make is they just simply don't understand what they're not good at. Right. And so being able to build that infrastructure around you, as you said, that Jeff helped you with must have been critical in, in making the grand, brand go the way it did. Uh, I, I do focus on one particular story that just intrigued me. When you were in New York and you decided you wanted to shift the Samantha Wills brand 
to take it more up market and to get into those really tier one stores uh, in the US. Mm. And the way you tell the story, it sounds almost like you look back on it and think it was a really dumb idea. But as I look at it through the strategy lens, I go, that's actually not a bad idea. It's actually pretty good strategy when you think about stretching into a new market. Mm -hmm. And with your ability to do that, um, you did in other areas, Samantha Will's Bridal, for example, which went gangbusters. Mm -hmm. So what went wrong there? I mean, you said you knew in your gut that it wasn't going to work, but what what do you think was the real thing that um, that made that a failure? I think the thing that made it a failure was that it was so inauthentic to to me. It was inauthentic to the brand and it was a, a decision led by ego, not by strategy. So, um, you know, just to give context, so I moved over to the States in 2010 because we were having such great um momentum with celebrity placement we had product on sex in the city um you know america was kind of knocking on our door and it needed someone over there to, to drive the brand so i made the move over there very quickly landed i was 28 years old it was the first time i'd lived out of australia I had a you know a somewhat disposable income and i just got stars in my eyes i remember you know doing market research over there and you know, rather than looking in, so we, we were a tier two brand. And when I say tier two, I, I'm a tier two shopper and I differentiate a tier one shopper is someone that, you know, follows trends and they're very much whatever brand is on trend that season, that's who they're shopping with. Whereas a tier two shopper is like, oh, that's a brand I like. I'm loyal to that brand, um, you know, come hell or high water kind of thing. So we had found our success in the sun as a tier two brand. We were very much known for our bohemian aesthetic. It was a lot of turquoise, a lot of statement stones, a lot of burnished metals. And then when I go over to America with the stars in my eyes, I'm like, oh, my gosh, look at all these beautiful tier one stores. Oh, you know, all these heritage brands. It's just I was like, I remember standing in Barney's and our, our consumer would never shop at Barney's. I didn't shop at Barney's, but I'm doing market research, research in Barney's, which is a high end department store in, in New York. And looking around and everything in those cabinets was beautiful, simple, polished metals. There was no statement stones in sight. Um, it was very, you know, singular layered. It was every, everything that we weren't. And I remember standing at those counters and it was almost as if my ego was on one side of me and imposter syndrome still on the other side of me. And the three of us just got into this like super deep conversation around, you know, if you're a real designer, this is what real designers are doing. Or, you know, you're not even a real designer anyway. So why aren't you doing this? Like just the most toxic of conversations. Um, so I went home and started designing the new collection and literally, literally stripped out every color, every, you know, if every piece of turquoise came out, I was like, we're not even using the word bohemian in our press releases where we're doing fine, we're doing minimal, we're doing polished metals. And I knew in my gut that it was the wrong thing because it wasn't who we were. And, you know, it should have been no surprise to anyone that it, the collection completely did not work. Not only did it not work, it also, um, you know, lost the any point of relativity with our engaged core community. Retailers would had such a great run in the lead up to it um, in Australia that they're like, all right, well, Samantha Wills is doing petite polished stone, uh, metals. Well, then we'll order in bigger this season. So they're left with this huge black eye in the form of excess stock. And then I think worst of all was like my team had lost confidence in me because at that time I was a creative director who wasn't doing authentic directing. It was completely ego-based. So essentially the destruction that I had to sit in was um, 
The only saviour was our loyal community and what I had to do for the next 18 months was get into conversation with her, not speaking to her but speak with her and really build that rapport back up again. And what I think on the upside it allowed us to do was sit in the rubble of that and take forward what serves us from our origins of brand and then, you know, move the brand forward. But I essentially had thrown the baby out with the bathwater in in the previous one. So, um, yeah, it was was the biggest learning curve and it it, it took a lot to bounce back from. But we got there in the end. And I I still say to this day it's the biggest mistake I've ever made in my career. Right. Um, And it's great that you can talk about it the way you have. Samantha, I just want to talk about some of the parts in the book where you um, expose some of the incredible personal turmoil that you went through throughout this journey. And I think the thing for me as a leader, you mentioned that you lead very, very well in terms of your ability to create vision and to motivate people and to have them as part of your um, part of your inner circle and to drive them that way. Did they see or know what was going on for you personally? And if so, how did it affect them? Um, I don't think at any given time they knew. Um, you know, I was based in New York. So I'd usually do six weeks New York, 10 days Sydney pretty consistently. Um, and I think that, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot and it relates to all business owners, but I think really with women in business, sometimes, you know, we, we're trying to juggle everything and, you know, there there is this obviously human element to business. And when we go through these personal times of despair or trauma or heartbreak and you running your own business, you can't call in sick to the boss if you are the boss. So there's this real... Um, layer that's not spoken about a lot. So the, the story that I share in the book where um, I say in around 2015, I was in a, a, a partnership, yeah, I was in a relationship for three years and um, there was a lot of moving parts in my life. I was on a plane every other week, the business was going great and it was almost like a Jenga tower where every piece was holding another piece up. And the piece for me that that moved in that Jenga tower was finding out that my boyfriend was cheating on me. And at that time, my personal career was kind of diverging from just being known as a jewellery designer. I was signing a lot of big public-facing contracts. And I just went to to bits. Like for the first few days after I found out, I could barely put a sentence together. I couldn't um, barely get out of bed. My friend would come over and, you know, get me out of bed long enough to change the sheets. I'd crawl straight back into them. It was really personally dark and heavy time and I don't think my team knew I mean I didn't tell my team at the time I think they might have noticed that I probably wasn't as accessible in in those days that followed Um, but I think that you know when I finally confronted him about it because I knew that there was there was something in there that there was a truth that I needed to know to move forward because I I liken it to a, a pool of almost like, you know, when you're a little kid and you jump in the pool, you're like, I'm going to touch the, the, the deep end at the bottom. So you take a deep breath and you dive down. And like, no, it's too far, it's too deep. So you kind of come back up and you um, you then take another big breath and then you dive down again. And it's almost like in, in life, it's like a pool of, of blackness where you're just kind of hovering. If you can't touch the bottom, you can't move forward. And I knew for me that I had to touch the bottom. So I sat down in front of my partner and I said, hey, like, how long has this affair been going on? And he looked at me and he said, well, which one? And I said, well, how many have there been? And he said, at least eight. And that bit of information was was the information that I needed to hit rock bottom, to touch the very bottom, to be able to 
start to rebuild down there. And I share that story because I think it's such a, you know, an example of, of whatever trauma it is, whether it's grief or heartbreak, but we do get plunged to the depth sometimes. Um, to Sorry, that was a very long way to answer your question. I don't think the team knew about it at the time, but when I felt that I was ready enough to share it with them, I definitely was, you know, I didn't go into to so much detail at the time with them, but I did let them know that, hey, I, you know, something's happened in my personal life um, and, and they were incredibly supportive. And I think that's a another element that I add to, to my leadership is um, is that kind of transparency, not just um, professionally, but also personally, because they're so intrinsically linked. So um, yeah, it's it's something that they probably knew the, the full extent of it when the book came out, but I think they would be able to think back to a time now and be like, oh, that's what was happening. So are you a firm believer in what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Or sometimes it just almost kills you? Yeah, I think sometimes it almost kills you. I think at that time, you know, I, I look back and even writing the book, I, you know, I say I was doing literary teleportation and going back to 21-year-old me and sitting there with her while her hands were bleeding and then, you know, going to 33-year-old me and, you know, she was there laying literally on the floor in such heartache and all I wanted to do was open the blinds to let some light in when I was revisiting her. But obviously, you know, we have to go through these things. And I think for me, um, being in that darkness was firstly shedding what no longer served me because that relationship did not serve me. But what was coming up on my path, which I didn't realize was to launch the Samantha Wills Foundation. And for my entire career to that point, my entire belief and still to this day was around women's empowerment. It was about championing women in business. It was everything around how do we support women women in business. And it was this whole women's empowerment angle. And but the core of empowerment is self-worth. So my professional self-worth was was a hundred percent, but my personal self-worth was somewhere in the gutter. And I realized that you know what was coming what was coming up for me, I needed to the, for those two elements, those two elements of self-worth to be in alignment. And when I, when my boyfriend said at least eight, my reply to him was, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. And that showed me where my personal self-worth was. So my job in that darkness, not that I knew any of this at the time, but in hindsight, this is the takeaway for me, that I had to be in that darkness to shed what no longer served me and then bring on, you know, an element of resistance and learnings and then ascend back up to, to the light and keep moving forward. And that alchemy for me was putting all of that energy into the Samantha Wills Foundation to help other women in business. So um, I, I don't say everything happens for a reason. I think everything happens for a purpose. It might not always be how we want it to play out. It usually isn't. Um, but there is there is something up ahead that not we, we can't really see at the time. Yeah, that's incredibly uh, deep, Samantha. Thank you for that. I I got to say, I read that little piece in your book probably three or four times when you asked your boyfriend to take you back. Mm-hmm. I was expecting to see the words, make sure you sleep with one eye open, buddy, from now on. <laughs> um, but instead, of, <laughs> instead it was, yeah. And that was, yeah, that was, I, I mean, I've, I found that amazing. Um, and for someone so successful at the time to be able to have that level of um, disparity between your professional persona and your, your actual inner, inner persona, which, um, you know, I guess a lot of us feel it's you know, one time or another. Um, let me just move on to a question I've been just dying to ask you because 
I reckon it's taken me two or three weeks to get my head around this, to tell you the truth. And this is the fact that you closed Samantha Will's jury on uh, 11th of January, I think it was, 2019. You so could have monetized that. Every entrepreneur that I've ever spoken to, I say, what's your exit strategy? Like right at the start, what's your exit strategy? And you've got this guru entrepreneur businessman, Jeff Bainbridge, with you. Yet you both came to the conclusion that the right thing to do was just to simply retire the brand Mm -hmm. and to move on and do something else when the valuation, sorry, I don't want to give too many um, spoilers in here for the book, but Jeff's conservative valuation of the business at the time was about $8 million, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe. Is, Is that the case? So I would have walked away with eight million. So it was probably you know, and he would have walked away with with thirty percent. Oh, probably about yeah, uh, twelve mil. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, I I think it, you know, as I said before, it was never about the money for me. I think first and foremost, and even till that till January eleventh, two thousand nineteen, it was about brand and it was about honouring that brand. I think also you know, naming a brand after yourself is obviously a very personal thing to do. Um, I did look at other brands that had sold that had um, founder namesakes that were no longer involved and to me the, the brand demised when when they weren't in there. I looked at, um, you know, even though the brand is still going, I look at Sass and Bide. I'm like without Heidi and, and Sarah Jane in it. I was like, oh, I just, I don't know. It just wasn't something that sat with my heart at all. Um, I, my heart was not made up in a way where I could kind of hand it over and just see what someone else did with it. Um, I definitely wanted to keep the Samantha Wills name for myself as well. I knew I had much more to give creatively. Um, while the jewellery chapter in my life was closing, I knew I had a lot more to give and I didn't know what that was at the time, but I knew I wanted to do it under the Samantha Wills brand. Uh, from that, I also inherited, you know, our database and our infrastructure. You know, I inherited a lot of things from that brand. Um but yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's I did a talk with American Express not long after we had announced the closure, and a gentleman in the audience job. He was an older gentleman, and he said, "I just don't understand your logic behind it." And he said, "You know, because I, I spoke a lot about wanting to honor the legacy of the brand and its people and what we had stood for." And he said, "I don't understand your legacy. I don't understand your logic. Sorry. Um, if you wanted to create a legacy, why wouldn't you hand it on to someone else to continue it on?" And in that moment, it hit me. I was like, firstly, there is no logic to what I'm doing. If we're talking about the thinking filter in the mind and the feeling filter in the soul, that decision was made entirely from my intuition and my soul. And it was, it felt like the right thing to do. And to this day, it still feels like the right thing to do. If I had to run it through my logic filter, there was no logic to, to do what we did. And I said to him, you know, the, the concept of legacy, we're both right in that, in that term. Like if, if you're handing something over to continue the legacy as to closing something to honour the legacy. So, um, yeah, there, there, is, there is no logic. I'm sorry, I wish I had a better answer, but there is no logic to, to that decision. It was based in purely off every fibre in my being felt like it was the right thing to do. Well, that's, that's the right answer. And particularly if you look back on it and have zero regrets. I mean, that's, that's the best test of any decision, isn't it? Um, so incredibly brave, uh, and I remember the tiny little sentence you had early in the book where you spoke about working at um, was it the Hog's Breath Cafe? Yeah, like carnivores are us, right? It is it is the meat restaurant, even though you were a committed vegetarian. Yeah, and I thought, gee, Samantha, this is really interesting. Personal values versus commercial sensibilities, but obviously you've proven that out in the biggest possible way. 
but not only was I a committed vegetarian, I was like, if I can upsell them on more meat, I get an extra twenty dollars in my pay packet. So <laughs> <laughs> totally, <laughs> yeah, needs yeah. must, right? Um, so. Uh, what's next for you and how can people learn more about you and find you apart from going and buying of gold and dust which I recommend to everyone who's listening oh thank you so much um yeah so the next so if if the book of gold and dust is kind of the story of that journey um I'm just in the final editing stages now of putting all together the tactile elements of that journey so we're doing a Samantha Wills masterclass which is actually a a handing over of almost two decades of, of branding information um and and creative business so that will be available from August and that's at samanthawills.com. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm just at samanthawills because, you know, I like to name everything Samantha Wills. As you do. Fantastic. Samantha, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous with your time and your thoughts. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast. And I just wish you all the best for whatever you do in the future, because I know that Samantha Wills jewelry is only the first step in what's going to be an incredible dynasty for you over your life. So congratulations and good luck with everything else that you do. Thank you so much. And thank you for providing platforms like this. And the no bullshit element is so brilliant and so important uh, for for business owners and entrepreneurs. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Samantha. All right. So that brings us to the end of episode 157. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please share this episode with another leader who you know is going to benefit from it. I look forward to next week's episode, The Blame Game. It's not me, it's you. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. 